Welcome to Childhood Art, a podcast sponsored by the Center for the Study of Childhood Art at the University of Arkansas. I'm Dr. Christopher Schulte, Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Hyam Park, Associate Director of the Center for the Study of Childhood Art and co-host of the Childhood Art Podcast. The Childhood Art Podcast aims to reconceptualize how adults understand and approach the artistic, play-based, and aesthetic practices of young people. As an extension of the Childhood Art Speaker Series, the Childhood Art Podcast utilizes follow-up interviews to center the practices of leading scholar practitioners, with special attention given to the untold and perhaps understated interests and experiences that shape their work. Today, we are pleased to return to dialogue with Dr. Christine Marmy Thompson. If you have not yet had a pleasure of reviewing their earlier presentation, which served as the inaugural event of the Childhood Art Speaker Series, please take some time to visit our website at www.centerforthestudyofchildhoodart.com. There on the Childhood Art Speaker Series page, you will find a recording of her presentation, which links to the CSCA YouTube channel. We highly recommend you take the time to listen to and reflect on the ideas shared as part of this presentation and to consider too the generative possibilities of Dr. Thompson's work. Tina, we would like to begin with a question that circles back to something you discussed during your presentation. In addressing the ways in which adults bring their own interests and values to the work of young people, you brought up the idea of art without criteria as informed by the work of Dennis Atkinson. Many of those in attendance found this idea to be intriguing in relationship to your own work around childhood art and in particular, the role of adults. How has this idea of art without criteria been part of your work with children over the years? Okay, Chris. Um, well, um, I think Beginning with um, the um, connection between the concept of art without criteria and what I've always um, referred to as voluntary drawing and what Brent Wilson has termed play art uh, is probably a good place to start. And um, the idea of voluntary drawing comes from uh, Hilda Lewis and Betty Larkorovitz and Mark Luca's book, um, Understanding Children's Art for Better Teaching, which is was published for the first time in the 70s. Um, and so these ideas go way, way back. And um, when Brent was um, first published his work on the superheroes of J.C. Holtz in 1974, he talked about the difference between school art and play art. And it was always a very attractive concept for me that there was um, a type of children's drawing and, and child art more generally that uh, was quite different in style and substance than um, what we were seeing produced in art classrooms. So I think that recognition of um, Dennis Atkinson's concept of both art without criteria and pedagogy without criteria um, are, uh, you know, was for me just uh, 
a very lovely way of, of sort of incorporating those concepts um, together. And um, what he's talking about basically is that you can't really um, predetermine or um, predict what an event of art making is going to become. And so that in a way, um, what Laura Chapman said long ago in, um, in her work and in David Peritzer as well, talked about the impossibility of really making art in schools. Um, in a way it's confirming that intuition that there's something other than art that happens in classrooms. However, I guess in my work, in my teaching and research, I have seen the possibility of creating what Brent Wilson calls pedagogical third spaces in the classroom where such real art can exist. So art without criteria can happen in a classroom, but it requires um, a stepping back from uh, predetermined um, journeys and outcomes. And so um, lesson planning becomes more um, responsive and more structural in a way. And the teacher moves into a role of both facilitating, witnessing, and listening um, to what the child is doing and uh, recognizing that what's emerging is actually um, unpredictable to the child as it is to the adult. So, and that's part of part of what art is. You know, we don't know what it's gonna be um, before it happens. And so to do a lot of the things we do in school, we reduce children to, you know, kind of the role of studio assistant or uh, apprentice or, um, um, you know, um, sort of, um, our, uh, you know, our materials to make art with, uh, rather than allowing them to be the center of the art making process. And so that's, I think, you know, beginning to look at what, what Pearson then talks about is the adventure of pedagogy, um, that you are witnessing something emerge and something that's challenging you to think you know, as art is challenging the, the child to think. Um, and even children who, you know, given that kind of freedom to create work that follows their own interests or um, incorporates their own um, pleasures and desires. Um, every, you know, even when the child is drawing the same thing over and over and over, which was, you know, always kind of a concern with sketchbook drawings because parents would come and say, all he does is draw dinosaurs. I don't, you know, I don't get this. Um, everything's new, you know, and so each time it's a different dinosaur, it's a different context, it's a different, uh, a different drawing, it's a different set of challenges that the child is meeting and um, inventing for himself or herself. Um, and so um, 
you know, I think it puts the, it puts a different spin on the relationship between teachers and students, between parents and kids, um, and um, puts the child in greater control and centers the child in a way. At the same time, it decenters um, the the pedagogical role, but it remains very important as part of the environment in which the child's creating. And as someone who, um, you know, is very attentive to what's happening and responding to and questioning and, and um, you know, becoming an audience for the child's work. Um, the teacher then can learn from that work things that then can be incorporated into future planning. So it's a much more responsive way of teaching. Um, and, um, you know, it, it acknowledges the kind of um, existence of art as a social practice. Um, and sees the possibility that other children are teaching one another. And also that the child is bringing um, their life outside the classroom into the classroom and expanding that possibility while they're there in the presence of, of interested adults and other children, so. Thank you, Tina. Tina, I've got a follow-up question on what you just shared. Um, could you tell us some stories about how you have seen um, examples of art happening um, as the third site pedagogy? Uh, what kind of drawing were those and when did that happen? Mostly, um, I've seen that happening in uh, sketchbook sessions, which um, mm -hmm. I instituted uh, along with Sandy Bales at the University of Illinois, where I taught for many years, um, we instituted uh, the practice of drawing in sketchbooks at the beginning of Saturday art classes uh, for community children back in the, um, uh, probably the 90s. <laughs> and um, I have been reading Ann Dyson's work on whole language and, um, and literacy practices in kindergarten and first grade. And they were using writing journals, which were really drawing journals, you know, in the, uh, initially because that's how children start to tell stories. And so her work was both kind of inspiring in that it took a very fresh look at what was involved in a child's drawing. Um, but also in that she was, um, was looking at this practice of allowing children to generate their own um, ideas and their own imagery. And so I um, talked to Sandy who was in charge of Saturday school and she was always up for you know trying new things. And so we decided that we would try this in preschool and kindergarten. And it was like, 
one of those things that's absolutely magic. You know, every once in a while you have a, a lesson or a set of materials or an exploration of some kind that is just, you know, seems to be ideally suited, something kids have been waiting all their lives to do. And it was that kind of, um, of alchemy that happened in the classroom. So we watched as children were, um, you know, suddenly had this space and this time in which to, you know, bring in their interests from outside and to draw together and to see one another draw. And they found each other through this process of, you know, very high visibility um, images that were all together on the floor so they could crawl around and see what other kids were doing. And they started forming these little clusters and groups. And, um, and it, just to backtrack a little bit before that, um, actually before we instituted the sketchbooks, um, we had a group of really extraordinary uh, inexperienced early childhood people who had come into our graduate program and were acting as TAs in the, um, um, in the preschool and kindergarten class. And they had converted from a very sort of overly determined curriculum, uh, very overly determined, um, to a very center-based curriculum. And one of the things that they had instituted was these large easels with, you know, sort of 24 by 36 inch paper on them and just setting them up with materials um, at the beginning of class and the kids were rotating among centers pretty much, you know, at will. And um, what we started seeing at those easels and some of the drawings that occurred there were extraordinary. And so we started then to see that same thing happening in the sketchbooks, that there were kids who at first, because they so um, clearly contradicted the sort of normal developmental um, story that we had all, you know, committed to memory. Um, we thought at first we had this incredibly gifted group of kids, you know, and I think there was no other way to see it if you really believe in, you know, that this is what normal development is. Well, these kids aren't doing that. So, but as we saw more and more kids drawing, it became clear that they're all gifted, <laughs> that none of them are following um, this developmental trajectory, that each child had a unique interest um, that was driving and a unique way of storytelling that was driving the way that they drew and that their drawings were evolving in a way that sort of suited um, their uh, subject matter. So for example, um, dinosaurs, which are incredibly popular in preschool and kindergarten. Um, you know, they require, almost require contour lines to exist. And so they make more sense if they're drawn with a contour line. And so here are these kids drawing with contour, um, you know, at, at four and five years old, because that's what they were, you know, that's, it was suited to what they were drawing. And, um, you know, and seeing kids, uh, particularly a lot of kids who were, third culture children um, coming from Korea 
possibly high on herself, um, drawing um, in incredibly different ways from the American, you know, um, Native American children. Um, and, uh, you know, just beginning to watch those cultural differences and those, you know, the learned schemas and the, um, and the variety of ways that children, even at that early representational stage were approaching art making um, was really a revelation. And so repeating that experience with sketchbooks in different settings in, you know, in uh, upper grades and seeing how that differed. And then at Penn State in Saturday school and also um, in research sites such as um, in, at El Valor in, in Pilsen in Chicago, um, you know, and seeing in the ways that children respond to those invitations that are just open to them, you know, to draw what they like, um, to draw to please themselves has been a really, uh, revelatory and continually surprising and um, experience. So, um, and, you know, it, it is uh, almost a universal that that's an appealing thing for children to do. So um, as Dennis Atkinson, or not Dennis Atkinson, Phil Pearson points out, um, you know, we should be as interested in the children who don't want to draw as we are in the children who do. And, um, you know, there are children who don't, you know, want to do that, but they do other things that are art-like in some way. And, um, you know, and, and other material explorations can be set up in the same uh, spirit and the same uh, manner of offering, um, you know, just uh, an open space where explorations can occur. Um, so. Thank you, Tina. I'd like to linger just a, a little bit because um, mm -hmm. sketchbooks and you know the development of these voluntary spaces where young people are able to make decisions about what comes to matter have mm -hmm. always been kind of a central feature in some of the Saturday school work that you do. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious about, um, you know, how important you, you find those spaces to be for the adults who are part of those uh, classrooms. So for example, the sketchbook time, but then, you know, it's, it's maybe 10 or 15 minutes at the beginning and at the end of the yeah. class, but what do you think young teachers take away from those small moments of time with young people that are actually quite different from maybe mm -hmm. some of the other moments that uh, you know, constitute their lives in classrooms with children. Yes, exactly. I think that, um, you know, I think that um, they learn a great deal in that situation if they're attentive. And if they're not, I mean, we've always told people, you know, this isn't a time to pour paint or, um, you know, uh, get paint shirts ready or, you know, prepare a snack or whatever. This is a time for you to be on the floor with the kids, you know, it's floor time. Um, and to be learning from them because um, it opens up an entirely different way of, um, understanding what children are about 
um, that then can feed into, I mean, it certainly informs your interactions with kids in the other part of the morning, which is more teacher directed. Um, but it also is just important for them to understand the competency and the capability of children and um, to understand them as not, um, uh, not as limited beings, which I think is what everybody kind of comes into teacher education with this idea that particularly young children are, um, you know, are sort of simple-minded and, uh, and incapable. And, you know, we talk about all the deficits that they bring, you know, that they're, they have no attention span, they have, um, you know, they're wiggly, um, they uh, can't, you know, sustain a conversation. And sitting there with them for 15 minutes and watching them work on the same drawing, maybe that they started the week before and opened up eagerly, you know, to resume that morning um, and talking with them and hearing them talk to one another and to themselves really gives them, uh, the teachers, a very different perspective on children and what they're capable of doing and uh, what their concerns are, how articulate they are, what they know about the world, um, how well they uh, interact with adults and other children. Um, you know, I think it is the most powerful thing that we do in a Saturday school situation is to provide that opportunity to actually learn from the children. Um, and you can avoid learning from the children. Uh, for years on end, you can avoid learning from the children if it's all coming from you all the time. If you're the one who's generating the plans and you're the one who is, you know, sort of controlling movement in the classroom and know what the products are supposed to be and, you know, and setting criteria ahead of time, you really can't just not know anything about your students um, other than they're six years old you know, and this is kind of typical six-year-old behavior, but, you know, to really know each child as an individual, you know, which is an ideal situation for a teacher. Um, there's nothing like these open spaces, you know, where you can really, um, you can really see them highlighted, you know, as, as unique individuals, you know, they really stand out on their own um, and um, in that space, so. Thank you, Tina. Um, so following a similar thread and also going back to um, Atkinson's idea of art without criteria, mm -hmm. might it also be important to think about the child, to think about children and to think about childhood as also being without criteria? Um, and what might this way of thinking enable or make possible? Additionally, what criteria tend to get in the way, so to speak, that perhaps we would be better off thinking without? Right. <laughs> and I think that probably one of the, you know, um, this is an excellent question. And um, 
I think one of the things that we would be better off without um, would be our reliance on developmental stages that are the legacy of the last century and uh, kind of scientific um, movement toward categorization of all kinds of things, you know, from corn yields to, you know, to children. And um, the kind of presumptions that we have internalized as a result of those, um, of both studying those as, you know, prospective teachers and, um, and simply living in a culture that assumes certain things about children on the basis, you know, of sort of the popularization of those, um, those stages. Um, just this week, <laughs> um, one of our students mentioned that they had been told that kindergartners, that their lesson was too challenging for kindergartners because of their lack of fine motor skills. And yes, <laughs> um, which is, you know, just kind of crazy on the face of it because for one thing, it's a horrible generalization. Um, but secondly, I don't think that watching my um, now 10 month old granddaughter put Cheerios in her mouth with great success, um, I think fine motor skills are not really an issue we need to devote a lot of attention to. Um, I don't know of any adults who can't, you know, fill in a bubble on a computer um, uh, scoring card or, um, you know, manage to cut with scissors. So I think that um, because of what we've been taught, we have sort of made these slogans um, into truths, which then we beat children up with, um, we expect, you know, they, they've become self-fulfilling prophecies. And so, you know, in order to think about young children in particular, we think, well, they have no attention span. And, you know, one thing that looking at children drawing and sketchbooks and pursuing their own interests in, you know, play on the playground or, you know, um, any kind of, you know, um, scenarios in the, um, in the backyard will easily disabuse you of that notion that they have no attention span because they very clearly do. Um, and we have other expectations that, you know, then, you know, sort of normalize particular ways of being and then make us, you know, put us in the position of making comparisons among children who, um, you know, are, and we start to classify them in terms of being deficient or gifted or um, based on what is supposedly normal for, you know, a particular age group. And so when we look at things like um, the achievement of a schema, you know, for example, a way of drawing trees or, or you know, composing a picture in a particular, you know, sort of um, schematic way with a ground line, a baseline and a skyline and, and air in between. And we think that, um, that that's 
the normal way for children to, you know, depict space. And, you know, when then we have a child who's not doing that at all, you know, who's uh, interested in very different kinds of things and very different kinds of representation. And what do we do with that? You know, how do we interpret what's happening there if we are invested in this sort of um, normalization and categorization that happens? Um, our filters sort of become blinders and we, you know, um, we start to see, um, you know, we start to believe that things that are happening before our eyes can't possibly be happening, you know. Um, teachers who will say they can't sit still and talk for 15 minutes when they're clearly doing that, you know, just that very thing. Um, and, um, you know, we're at in early childhood where children are very intensely governed and subject to a lot of restriction and a lot of control from adults. Um, we're particularly prone to believing our own sort of myths about childhood. And so, um, you know, engaging what, um, in what Bronwyn Davies calls listening as usual, we, you know, fail to hear what they're actually saying. And, um, you know, we sort of substitute this, um, you know, kind of registry um, of, you know, of what we expect versus what they've actually said and done. And so, um, you know, I think that those are the kind of criteria we all have, as Malaguzzi said, um, we all have an image of the child that we carry around with us. And we have to kind of constantly question that image of the child because it can blind us to um, uh, lots of the, uh, the richness and the specificity and the multiplicity that happens in our classrooms. We can see them all, you know, uh, as a group rather than as individuals and as, um, you know, and, and sort of as featureless as ciphers um, too. So we have to kind of um, constantly attempt to be there among the children and to listen and to linger, you know, and to not satisfy, you know, not be so quick to say, well, that's why, you know, that's why they're doing that because they're, you know, they're egocentric. You know, they're, um, that's the big one, um, that they can't see other people's point of view. And so they're, that's why they're acting the way they are. Um, and, um, you know, so I think that there are a tremendous number of cultural myths about children, um, different ways of seeing children, like, uh, for example, seeing kids as innocent, um, versus seeing kids as knowing, you know, and this comes up oftentimes in the kind of uh, issues that we have about seeing difference in, among children, um, you know, that we tend to see that as a whole, uh, culturally, we tend to see black children as less innocent than white children. 
and to deprive them of the kind of, um, of uh, comfort of childhood. And, um, you know, we expect more mature behavior from, uh, from black children, but, um, you know, why? <laughs> you know, that is, uh, that is coming from a, a, you know, belief in who is innocent, who is knowing, and a fear of the knowing child. And so we have this incredible ambivalence about children in our culture, and it's not just our culture, but, you know, um, it's certainly the case around the world as well. But um, instead of seeing children through these lenses that we've been, uh, that we've developed through both professional study and just kind of personal experience and, and living in a, a particular time and place, um, we need to be more attentive to specific children and to try to sort of um, constantly kind of bracket our um, preconceptions about kids. So I keep coming back to that, to my initial sort of phenomenological grounding in, in trying to see things freshly and, um, you know, and to not make presumptions about kids. Um, so I don't know if that. Thanks, Tina. I, I kind of want to, I'd like to build off that a little bit because, yeah. you know, I've I've benefited from working with you in a variety of capacities as colleagues, as uh, when I was a grad student, you were faculty advisor, so on and so forth. But a central part of, you know, so much uh, of your teaching um, and the workshops that you were generating and facilitating require that people be with young people, that spend time with them, listen, uh, mm -hmm. attend to the, the ways in which they engage in different practices. And so I'm, I'm curious about um, if you talk a little bit about just your own teaching practice uh, with undergrads and grad students and you know how much of this has been part of that, you know, yeah. setting up occasions for teachers and grad students to have to idle with young people and also uh, the, the challenges of maybe working against their own assumptions about what they think they know about children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's tough for some people um, to let go of those um, ready explanations for things. Um, but I think I've always, um, you know, since I was able um, in graduate school as a grad assistant to um, be in charge of Saturday school at, at University of Iowa. Uh, I have always loved working with practicum situations and with supervision of student teachers and um, particularly in a Saturday school setting um, where we can really set up a lab where we're exploring new ideas. And, um, and with graduate students too, it's always been um, a goal to provide settings where people can get out and do things, you know, and, and actually be enacting both the, um, you know, it kind of inquiries into children's culture and into um, into children's drawing and also, you know, sort of following their own research, but 
um, but trying to have that expand into some kind of dialogue with with children uh, or young people in some some setting in some way. Um, and I think you know, in part, the unpredictability of that and the kind of um, uh, you know, and understanding that nobody can predict what's going to happen when they go out and do that uh, is part of the appeal. Because I think there's always so much to be gained from something that you, you know, are just risking everything on. So, um, so make, doing case studies and and documenting experiences working with kids have always been things that I've uh, I've treasured, and I think that um, comes. Definitely from my own graduate um, education and from working with Marilyn Zumilin um, at Iowa and having that opportunity to um, explore connections with um, the real world, you know, and to move beyond the classroom and beyond the text and beyond the study of. Um, of what other people have said into a real examination of, you know, does this actually, you know, it does this actually happen in the real world? And so even at a time when I was still pretty um, devoted to developmental inquiry, um, it was a matter of, you know, testing it out and trying to encourage people to see whether, uh, and it often didn't. And that was one of the things that made me start to wonder about, um, you know, how this whole, uh, you know, foundational area of our field, how, you know, how flimsy it was and how, uh, uh, how unlikely that structure was to actually support, you know, our thinking about children. Um, but I think that the uh, the opportunity to actually um, work with children and to get beyond the initial first of all fear um, of you know being unable to work with children, but also to get beyond the kind of um, assumptions that we have because one of the one of the things that students often say, as soon as they get back from their first encounter with kids in, in one of these settings is I, they're so smart. You know, I just can't believe how much they know. And it's constantly astounding to them, but it also belies, you know, their initial understanding of children as being not smart, you know, and being, um, you know, not capable and, and not, um, you know, and not very interesting, you know, so to find out, you know, that they have these conversations with kids and that, um, you know, and that phenomenon that you experience when you're in a room full of children, that after a while, you don't realize they're children anymore, you have to kind of remind yourself that, you know, these are, are tiny little people. Um, but it really, uh, you know, you're just communicating with another human being. And, um, you know, to have that experience is, I think, essential as a part of teacher education. And I think it's essential for researchers as well, um, to be able to understand, um, 
you know, that they need to go deeper. And that these are, these are even in a classroom situation where they have, as I did at one point, 750 kids a week that they're seeing, you know, and it's not really possible to get to know them easily or quickly, that those are the kind of people you know, that, um, that you know from your Saturday school experience, that they all have lives that are going on outside the classroom, that they're bringing interests and values and, and opinions and experiences into their work with you that are rich and informing and engaging and um, puzzling and um, challenging. And so, you know, I think that having that initial experience during uh, grad school or undergraduate school is essential to then continuing the work that you do. Because um, the strictures on our teachers um, are insane. And, um, you know, it's not always possible to have this this time so you need to make you know need to take advantage of of the time we do have um in the preparatory phases um of schooling so thanks tina um so during your presentation you made the point that the single story of chatted is no longer adequate as a researcher of childhood art, what encounters or experiences have you had that have helped you to see the importance of this recognition? And, or in other words, when you think about your journey as a researcher, have there been any um, specific moments that helped you to see the importance of this recognition that the single story of childhood is and perhaps never was adequate? Yes. Um, the. Um... I realized that I didn't give uh, credit to Chimamanda Adichie in her TED talk um, in my presentation, and I wanted to do that. It's also, the single story is also a, um, a concept that Dennis Atkinson picks up, but it, you know, coming from that TED talk where she is um, encouraging us not to rely on, you know, a single story or a stereotype that we may have developed about um, a group of people, a culture, um, you know, um, and instead to recognize that we need to focus on multiple small stories and that we need to continually um, uh, see the opportunity to multiply um, the stories that we tell about, you know, in this case about children. And, um, you know, so for me, I think watching children draw um, in general is the origin of, you know, many small stories and simply being uh, in a classroom where those drawings are happening um, in uh, in Saturday school, the sketchbook time was always sort of sacrosanct to me. It didn't always work out that way, but I tried to stay with particularly preschool and kindergarten during sketchbook time because I really wanted to be there for those stories. Um, and um, at Illinois, I went to my office and did some work during, <laughs> during the, the uh, more formal part of the class because I wasn't really, you know, officially 
involved there. So I could just, you know, uh, pick and choose. But, um, but I think I remember at one time, um, I was teaching when I first came to Illinois, when I first started teaching. Um, and I was teaching uh, elementary methods. So elementary and early childhood um, perspective teachers and, and teaching methods courses to them. And we had, uh, you know, a really excellent program. But one of the things that we did in there, along with studio, was to talk about children and to talk about uh, developmental stages. And we talked about principles and, and, you know, other perspectives as well. But one day, uh, one of the students was uh, unable to drop her daughter back off at school. She'd been called to pick her up and had um, taken her to the doctor and gotten her checked out, but then had been unable to get her back home or back to school before class. And so she asked if she could bring her along. And I said, of course, so we set her up in the back of the classroom with paper and, and markers and and I was talking that day about kids her age. I think I was about, you know, I think she was about nine. And as I'm doing that, you know, I'm looking back at her and thinking, how weird is this, <laughs> you know, that she's sitting there listening to this description of people of her and people like her. And, um, you know, in these sort of broad generalizations and she's listening very intently. And I'm thinking, you know, this has got to be the weirdest thing she's ever experienced. And, um, you know, and I'm also thinking, uh, you know, and what does this have to do with her? Um, this really is just so, um, you know, just so out there that, um, uh, you know, maybe this doesn't belong here. And so I think that was a really, that was a really important uh, realization for me that it really, you know, when you get to the reality of children and, and um, you know, and, and then these, these kinds of theoretical abstractions, um, are almost insulting, actually. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think that um, a million other encounters with children, you know, that I can think of that, um, that happened along the way, I would say, um, you know, that it's, that impulse has been confirmed time and time again. About that same time, my son was in kindergarten and he was enrolled in a, a, a reading program that was experimental. It was a Westinghouse uh, uh, reading program and I've forgotten the name. But a part of what they did was to type on these clunky old computers, type stories and they would print them out and then there was all this, you know, space around the um, the uh, the text, and he was very good with language, and he was the good writer, and he became a writer as an adult. Um, but uh, what I was struck by was the drawings that happened 
around the text they because there was all this paper and the drawings were absolutely fabulous and not just Paul's but everybody's and you know and I was trying to think it was kind of the reverse of what we do in the classroom where we're um, you know, trying to motivate children with, you know, some kind of a dialogue that, you know, um, as Lohenfeld said, would activate passive knowledge and we're, you know, trying to get them to conjure images so that they can um, transcribe those onto the paper. And it, this is the opposite of that. So the story comes first and then the, um, then the drawing. And the drawings were absolutely fabulous. And the, the stories were coming from the kids. And even though the stories for a lot of the kids who were not quite as far along on the path to literacy were pretty minimal, the drawings were fantastic. And so these incredible graphic narratives were happening and it was like, okay, this is different too. So starting, I think, along this path where things are, you know, are not jibing with um, the story we learned and, and, you know, and sort of mastered to, you know, a great extent, this just isn't, isn't happening. And so seeing children, starting to see children as sort of perpetually becoming um, and kind of constantly, um, you know, always in some way inaccessible, but, um, but to, you know, begin to see that our theories are very, very um, uh, fallible and um, that we need to kind of constantly learn. I, um, you know, as, as far as confirmations of that, then that happened like every Saturday. <laughs> so there was always somebody who was, you know, sort of confirming that, that they were off in another realm doing very different things. And, you know, part of that was seeing children who were coming with their parents from other countries and coming to Saturday school and particularly lots of Asian kids who would have been in art classes, would have been in private art classes uh, at home. And so we're taking art classes at the university. Um, they were drawing, you know, in incredibly different ways and not just, you know, sort of more complex and, and sophisticated, but, uh, but different, just, you know, they, uh, they had different uh, kind of interests in fashion, in, you know, um, in popular culture and media that were driving, you know, uh, very different ways of proceeding with a drawing, even beginning a drawing, you know, beginning a drawing of a human at a different point, you know, than um, a lot of what we were seeing with, um, with kids who had grown up all their lives in central Illinois or, or central Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, so, and then, you know, coming to Chicago in 2008, it's been a very long time now, uh, for a sabbatical and working in um, a preschool in the, the largely Mexican neighborhood of Pilsen. Um, and encountering kids who were three years old, and I never worked with three years old, three-year-old kids before, um, and were drawing, you know, much more fluently than um, 
a lot of the four-year-old kids who we were working with in central Pennsylvania and uh, were also, um, you know, in some cases just completely off the charts and doing things that, you know, for which there was no explanation. And so, um, you know, I think that that kind of, you know, encountering enough drawings and enough children to see that, you know, yeah, this doesn't, you know, this just doesn't match. So this doesn't, uh, doesn't compute. Um, so, and understanding that our, you know, the assumptions that we bring if all we're doing is bringing our assumptions in and not really listening and seeing the children in front of us, um, that we are marginalizing kids who don't suit, you know, who don't conform. And in some sense, we tend to pathologize those kids in ways that, um, you know, we uh, don't see what's happening. And I think listening, one of those things, um, I think early on that I took to heart was um, Ann Dyson talking about uh, Howard Gardner's theory that some children are um, what he calls dramatists and that even though their drawings, you know, finished drawings look like scribbles, they are not because they have this incredible narrative that's evolved over the course of, um, of the drawing. And so they are, they are making non-representational marks in, to accompany a very sophisticated story. And I was seeing a lot of that in Saturday school as well. Um, so, yeah. Dr. Thompson, thank you for your time and for the care you have taken to further illustrate your work and practice. It has been such a pleasure to spend this time with you. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Hyun. Thank you, Tina. Next time on Chatted Art, we will sit down with Dr. Tran Templeton and Dr. Vivek Valenki. Until then, visit our website for additional updates and news at www.centerforthestudyofchartedart.com. Thank you. Thank you.